Yeah. There's a little Paul McCartney for you, which is appropriate because we're going to be talking about the Beatles. Nick DeGilio here on 720 WGN, live in the Skyline studio above downtown Chicago. Uh, we got some classic Carson comedy. The Johnny Carson show is on Antenna TV uh, every weeknight. So we play clips from uh, the Johnny Carson show. Some stand-up, some sketches, things like that. Just a little comedy. We do that at uh, 2.30 every uh, morning. And we're going to play a little classic Paul Poundstone this morning. 312-981-7200 is the phone number if you would like to join us. My dad's going to tell a joke because it's Monday morning. And uh, we like to start off your Monday week, your work week, with a joke. All right. Um, My guest now is author Spencer Lee, who has written a ton of books. I'm looking at... uh, the books that he's written and uh there's a lot here and he's uh he's a beatles expert so we're going to talk about the beatles and much more with spencer lee and let's say hello to spencer right now hello spencer hi nick uh, thanks very much for having me on the show i've only written a lot of books because i'm old <laughs> <laughs> when did you uh when did you get into uh get into writing spencer well, I, I suppose I, I've always written. I actually worked in insurance for many years, and uh, I, I, I've been writing articles and books, really, yeah, since my teens. I was born in 1945, and uh, I've always found there's been quite a lot to write about. But uh, since uh, I took early retirement from insurance in the, when I was 50, I spent the last 25 years really writing books and, and broadcasting on local radio and doing sleep notes and things like that and having a great time actually and my my new book is on bob dylan that's called outlaw blues and there's a lot of connections between the beatles and bob dylan and that and so it's been very interesting to look at the beatles through a different angle you know I, very often i'm coming back to the same subject but looking at it through a different different glass as it were yeah what is it about music that fascinates you so much? Because most of the stuff that you've written, uh, these many books, are about music. Has it been been a passion of yours for a long time? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I can remember in 1956. Uh, but, well, in fact, it, the Elvis Presley Sun Records weren't released in this country at the time. So the first time we came across Elvis Presley was when he had Heartbreak Hotel out, which was on the HMV label here. And I remember being 11 years old and seeing in the charts this name, Elvis Presley, Heartbreak Hotel. And Heartbreak Hotel was a very unusual type of a song. And I'd never heard of anyone called Elvis before. This sounded extraordinary. But the thing is, uh, the BBC hardly played any pop music then. So I couldn't get to hear this track. And you could go into record stores not to hear a record back in those days. But in fact, if you were 11 years old, they said, no, you're not old enough. So I was not hearing this record at all, Heartbreak Hotel, and I was desperate to hear it. And I think I was um, off school with the flu, and, the, and I switched on the radio, and there was a minister talking, giving a sort of little pep talk, which he did every day. And this minister said, uh, I have just heard the worst, the most abominable record that has ever been made this is it, it should be banned, it's awful. And he played this echo-drenched record of Elvis Presley singing Heartbreak Hotel. Well, 
And he only played a minute of it and said how awful it was. But I just got up off my sickbed and went down to the record store and bought it. Uh-huh. And, uh, my life has never been the same since, really. So that's it. Heartbreak Hotel was the changer, huh? Well, it was, it was an extraordinary record. I mean, it, it, it was like something from outer space, and then a couple of minutes, months later, Little Richard came along, and that really was from outer space. So there were these amazing records, and then you had the beat scene emerged in Liverpool. You had Bob Dylan coming along in the early 60s, and I, I, the reason I think the 60s was so great, and you don't get this now, is that there were so many major talents around, like the Beach Boys, like Bob Dylan, like Bert Bacharach, like the Beatles, and everybody wanted to be better than everybody else. And so the competition was so intense that that made them really great. I mean, 15 years ago, the biggest group around was Oasis. Well, Oasis, to my mind, just took a Beatles B-side reign and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. Yeah. And people accepted that because there wasn't all that much else around that was really creative. But in the 60s, if the Beatles had, say, done Rain and rewritten Rain and rewritten Rain, uh, nobody would have been interested. You had to come up with new stuff. And so I think the 60s was the most creative decade that I can think of from a, from a musical point of view. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people would agree with you on that, and uh, and you know, I mean, look at the, look at all of the great artists and all of the great albums and songs that came out in the '60s. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah, and there were so many other artists, and they had to be good to keep up. You know, people like Ray Davis of the Kinks, for example. They didn't want to be left behind, so it, it encouraged people to be the best that they could possibly be. And I think there were just extraordinary songs throughout the '60s. And you, you just don't get that today, and you haven't had it for some time. There are, there are great things here and there, but not not all that much. Yeah, no, I mean, it was it's an incredible decade. It really was. Okay, uh, uh, Spencer, hold on, okay? Yep. All right, Spencer Lee is with us. Um, he is a, a writer who's written a ton of books. He's also a Beatles expert, too, so we're going to talk Beatles this morning. And if you want to jump in, 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. It's Nick DeGilio on 720 WGN. Nick DeGilio here on 720 WGN. We are uh, live in the Skyline studio here, but beautiful downtown Chicago. We're here until 4. 312-981-7200 is the phone number if you would like to join us. Um, It's a Monday morning. That means my dad's going to tell a joke because it's a jokey, jokey, jokey time. My guest right now is Spencer Lee, who is an author of many books and a Beatles expert. So uh, we're going to talk about some Beatles topics, and you want to jump in, it's 312-981-7200. Okay, Spencer. Uh, Hi. Yes, yes. Uh, What was the first Beatles book that you wrote? Uh, Well, the first Beatles book I wrote, realized that there was a whole wealth of history on Radio Merseyside, on Merseyside that really wasn't being covered. And I thought I really must interview all the people I could find who were connected to the Merseybees era and do a radio series around that. And that was a radio series called Let's Go Down the Cavern, and then that became a book. And that was the first book, I suppose, that, that I really wrote. Uh, about the Beatles, and then I wrote more specifically about the Beatles, and I was 
got a, a book out now, uh, Love Me Do To Love Me Don't, which is about the Beatles record. Um, there's a whole history of the Cavill Club. There's a book I did called The Beatles in Liverpool and another one called The Beatles in Hamburg, which is great fun to do. And I've also done The Beatles in America, too. So there's, there's quite a few, actually. It sounds like I rework my catalogue the whole time, but I don't really. There's new stuff in every book. Uh, let's, let's talk about the history of the cavern for a little bit. I mean, this is a legendary place where the Beatles basically kind of got their start. Yeah, and it, it must be having, uh, well, it's having a dreadful time at the moment, of course, because it, it's shut because of uh, the COVID problems. And it, that is the sort of place where you have 300 people cramped together. I mean, that, that's the excitement of the place, and, and that's exactly the sort of place that you can't really have these days. Right. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But the cavern was uh, a fairly small underground club. Um, it was in a warehouse area of Liverpool. It started as a jazz club in 1957 and was pretty popular as a jazz club, did pretty well. Uh, and then it got a new owner in 1959 and he decided that he wanted to have some beat music in there. And the first beat group he had was actually called Wump and His Wurble, <laughs> as who's ever heard of them again. But there were groups around like Jerry and the Pacemakers, like the Beatles, and gradually they got in there. The, the Beatles had first appeared at uh, the Cavern, actually, as a skiffle group. Uh, I don't know if skiffle means very much in America, but um, it was very popular here with Lonnie Donegan, and there were lots of bands who played acoustic instruments, and that was, uh, that was skiffle music. Right. And then they graduated to electric instruments and rock and roll. So that's and when they got the their start. Yeah. Are, uh, yeah, and the men had... Uh, John Paul and George in there, and the, the other quarry men are still around, and you can go and see gigs by the quarry men. <laughs> really, they don't have to be too good, because after all, the, this is a band of musicians who John Paul and George didn't think were good enough for them. Uh -huh. um, but they, they tell stories in between the songs, and they are really delightful, and I, I, love, I love seeing the quarry men. Yeah, that's, that's a long history of that. Let's talk about it. You know, since we're talking about the beginning of the Beatles and the Cavern and stuff, let's talk about um, the whole Pete Best thing um, and, uh, yeah. and how he got kicked out of the Beatles, obviously replaced by Ringo. Uh, talk a little bit about Pete Best and, the, and, and what happened there. Well, Pete, Pete Best joined the Beatles in 1960 when they were going to Hamburg, and I think he was a good, rock and ro good solid rock and roll drummer. But as their music got a bit more sophisticated, he couldn't really keep up with that. Now, if you talk to Pete Best, he says, I was never told why I was sacked from the Beatles. But in fact, but he will tell you that Brian Epstein said to him, sorry, Pete, you're not, enough, you're not a good enough drummer, you've got to leave the band. It's just that Pete never accepted that explanation. <laughs> Uh, and there are other reasons why Pete uh, may not have been satisfactory for the Beatles. And in fact, we know that George, for example, wanted to get his best friend Ringo in the Beatles. So they had lots of different reasons for wanting Pete best out of the Beatles. But really, it was because he couldn't keep up with them. He wasn't that good a musician, really. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was because he wouldn't get a Beatles haircut, which is some people say. I mean, Pete best... Um, didn't have the right didn't have the right sort of hair for a Beatles haircut, 
and so there would have been difficult there would have been difficulties there. So, but I, I just think it was it was it wasn't good enough. And in fact, on anthology, the first anthology set, you get the first session of EMI where they do love me do, which is not considered good enough. And if you listen to the middle of that record, it sounds as though Pete Best is banging on dustbin legs. It's just a terrible sound. So um, certainly the first time George Martin heard Pete Best, he certainly wasn't at his best. And so how did Ringo get into the picture? Well, Ringo had always been friendly with George, and he played with another band, which was a bit of a joke band on Merseyside called Rory Storm and Hurricanes. But they knew him, they knew he was a good drummer, and they thought that he would fit in with them. And he did fit in perfectly. He was just the right sort of drummer for them. Because if, if you could sit on Lennon and McCartney's songs, they, they were brilliant songs. But if they had a drummer like Keith Moon of the Who in the band, he would have left for the song. Because they wouldn't have needed that, that sort of drumming. So Ringo just knew exactly what, what he was there for. And I was speaking to Bev Bevan at ELO once, and uh, Bev Bevan said to me, Ringo was a real bricklayer like me. And I thought, that's a perfect explanation. Bev Bevan knew that Jeff Lynne wrote great songs for ELO, and he didn't get in the way of them. And that was what Ringo did, too. Perfect beat. Yeah, you know, I think <clears throat> Ringo has always been... Uh, a, a, a very underrated drummer. Uh, he, he, I think he deserves a much better reputation as a drummer um, over the years. Yeah, but he's, he's done quite a lot, a lot, a lot of things uh, too. I mean, and his all-star band when he's had people like Dr. John in there is very good. And some of his vocal records aren't bad either. Um, things like Photograph, for example. So I, I've got a soft spot for Ringo, but I, I'm not just <laughs> The people in Liverpool have mixed feelings about Ringo because some years ago when Liverpool, in 2008, when Liverpool became the capital of culture, Ringo was brought back uh, to a concert appearance in Liverpool. And after he'd had that concert appearance in Liverpool, he, he went on national television, he was interviewed on national television, and he was asked if he'd like to live back in Liverpool permanently. And Ringo said, no, he said, that's just the sort of thing you say when you're in Liverpool. And the people in Liverpool were incandescent with rage about this. At Radio Merseyside, for example, the phone-ins were jammed for a week with people criticising Ringo and saying, he's made all this money out of Liverpool and here he is dissing us. Awful. Uh, but uh, I'm going to say something in Ringo's favour here. Uh, but... He made a documentary for the Disney Channel in 1990. And in that Disney Channel, he came to Liverpool. He was touring with his all-star band. And it was very interesting because the places that Ringo picked out in Liverpool were hospitals that he'd been in for a considerable length of time when he was young. And so I thought, this guy doesn't have the same picture of Liverpool that John, John Paul and George did because he was a sickly child. And that's what he remembers of Liverpool. So, of course, his view is different. And I, I think that was why he made a joke which uh, backfired, as it were. But, uh, I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think he's been great for the Beatles. I think he's done some very good work since the Beatles. 
I would like to see him now, with, I mean, the Beatles really have got their biggest task ever because they've got to save Liverpool now because our economy is so down because yeah. of the because of the virus. Yeah. And if tourism is to return to this area, it's got to be because of the Beatles. And I would like to see Paul McCartney with Ringo say doing some big concerts here and bringing people in and everything. And recently in Liverpool at the Walker Art Gallery, there's a, a wonderful exhibition of Linda McCartney's photographs. And that's fantastic, and that's an example of people coming to Liverpool, hopefully, because of the Beatles and seeing those pictures. Yeah. Boy, she was, she was, a, talented, she was a talented photographer, Linda McCartney. Oh, yeah. Well, even before the Beatles, she was a very talented photographer. You've got the pictures of people like Jimi Hendrix, the fabulous picture in there of B.B. Um, King on stage. Which, which is marvellous. I mean, there's just great photographs throughout the whole exhibition. And, and they actually give her contact sheets as well. And you've got, say, a block of 25 photographs of Frank Zappa, and you can see the one that she circles. What I found interesting about her as a photographer was she didn't seem to cut her photographs. A lot of photo photographers take a certain section of the photograph and have that blown up. But uh, she didn't do that. She just picked the whole picture that she'd taken on that contact print. Yeah, I was always a, I was always a big fan of Linda McCartney, and I was it was really sad when she passed away. Uh, you know, taking oh, from yeah, a, ab ab absolutely tr absolutely tragic. Yeah, we used to eat a lot of uh, macaroni cheese too, and, <laughs> and that <laughs> disappeared now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Spencer, hang on, okay. Talking with uh, author and Beatles expert Spencer Lee. If you want to jump in with any of your Beatles comments or questions or memories, 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. It's Nick DiGilio on 720 WGN. Nick DiGilio here on 720 WGN. And uh, we are live in the uh, <clears throat> Skyline studio here in downtown Chicago here until uh, 4 o'clock. Uh, yeah. And um, it is a Monday morning. That means my dad's going to call in and tell a joke because it's a jokey, jokey, jokey time. And, um, yeah, we're here until uh, 4. 312-981-7200 is the phone number. And uh, we're here till 4 o'clock. Spencer Lee is my guest. He is an author of several, several books and a Beatles expert. So we're talking a little bit about the Beatles right here on uh, this Monday morning. Hello, Spencer. Hi. Hi. Um, let's talk about um, the the uh, the Beatles. The story of the Beatles that refused they refused to play in front of a segregated audience. Well, they, they yes, uh, but they they didn't do any dates in South Africa. They didn't want to do that, and uh, they they wanted to play in, in front. Of, um, I haven't got the details of it, but certainly when they came to America, I think, I think it was Jackson wanted it, but, but uh, they, didn't, they didn't want to appear in front of a segregated audience, yes. Um, and um, that, that, that fits in with their thoughts at the time, I think. And this was back in 64? Uh, Yes, it was. Yes, yes. I mean, the one, the one, a big American tour, and they just seen nothing like that. It would have been very unusual for them. I mean, there was no, there was nothing like segregated audiences in the in the UK. So uh, 
you know, the kind of brave stand that they were actually taking. I mean, Brian Epstein didn't want them to get political at all, and in fact, he told them not to mention Vietnam. Um, but of course, uh, John Lennon did in the other seat too. Uh, but, uh, and, and that was a big difference actually between Britain and America in the 1960s. And I, I think it's reflected in the music too, because um, there were all the protests against Vietnam happening in America, whereas in the UK, the British Prime Minister Harold Wilson said that he would support what America was doing in Vietnam, but he wasn't going to send in British troops in. And so, as a result of that, the psychedelia that you get in England is much more sort of gentle, really, um, and it, it's much harder, I think, in, in America. You have something like uh, the Mamas and the Papas Safe in My Garden, Mm-hmm. Whereas George Harrison wrote the song about let's all go and have a cup of tea. <laughs> um, so it, it was very different. Now, what, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about the Beatles? I th- uh, well, uh, one of them was in the group itself because I don't think for some time that Lennon and McCartney realized that George Harrison was actually writing very good songs. And his songs were sort of on the back burner when they came to albums. In fact, if you look at the recording details of George Harrison's songs over the years with the Beatles, quite often John or Paul was missing from that particular setting. Um, probably because they thought, well, it's not one of our songs, it's one of George's. And I, I think that was a pity. And I, I, and I don't think George, Har- George Martin picked up on the quality of George Harrison's songs early enough. Um, and that was why, at the Candlestick Park in 1966, uh, George Harrison got on the plane and said, that's it, I'm not a Beatle anymore. He was the first to say he was out. But, I mean, they persuaded him to stay, of course. But he only got one or two songs on the Beatles' albums when they came out. And uh, that was why, once... Um, the Beatles split up, you got that real outburst of creativity from in that All Things Must Pass album. Uh, I think the Beatles, I mean, groups split up then. There was no idea that a group could split up for a couple of years, do solo projects and come back together again. No one had thought of that then. But that, that might have been the best idea. But George was desperate to get out and to do his songs. And you could hear that in All Things Must Pass. You know, he had all these songs, and he just couldn't get them on the albums because then the other cart never taken up all the space. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you uh, agree with the fact that you maybe you know that uh, George Harrison is the most underrated Beatle? I, I certainly think he's been. I, I think he's rated higher now. Yeah, um, and I think people have come to appreciate his songs, and that concept of George that happened in. England uh, at the Royal Albert Hall in 2002 was that extraordinary band with Jeff Lynne and Gary Brooker, um, Albert Lee and Eric Clapton. That fantastic band that they had there doing George's songs uh, was, was quite remarkable and that, and that, did, that did very well. And I, I think now people realise that George was writing songs on a par with Lennon and McCartney. He, he just needed more encouragement in the 60s. 
uh, and, it, and it didn't seem to get it from within the band, and, and that was wrong with John and Paul, I think. But when they were being so creative, you know, in a way, who, who could blame them? And in, in the end, I mean, one of the reasons, I suppose, that the Beatles split up was that they, all, they were all wanting to do their own thing. They were, well, I was going to say there were four very creative people, but there were three very creative people in Ringo Starr, you might say, and Ringo Starr was very obliging and did what he, what he was asked to do. And when you become creative and you have different ideas and things, you're going off in different directions. So whereas they were all focused when they started and when they were having hit records in 63 and 64, gradually it diversified because they wanted to do different things. So it was no surprise that uh, the group split up and went off in diff different directions. And you had those extraordinary uh, solo albums that John Lennon made, um, the first two in, in particular. Um, uh, uh, the one that has Mother on it, and I found out that's one of the most harrowing records that has ever been made. I mean, it, it, it was quite out of left field, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, it's a powerful song. It's yeah. a powerful song. Yeah, indeed. And McCartney was writing great songs as well. Um, I, I often think, uh, I've read interviews with um, Leonard Cohen, and he, he, said, he said that a lot of his tunes came from going to the synagogue when he was young and picking up a chance and rewriting them. And I think you have the same sort of thing with McCartney, because he, he went to church as a child, he heard English hymns, and let it be is like an English hymn. You can, you can see how it develops from that. So uh, you are some of your influences to some degree. Yeah, it's 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 amazing stuff. Uh, you know, the, what about um, I've got an article in front of me here the, with twenty unfinished Beatles songs that ended up on solo projects. Let's talk a little bit about those. Some of the songs that were meant for Beatles albums but ended up on solo records. Well, it's quite a, quite a lot of that. One of them is um, George's song about uh, apologizing for, for all the problems that they later had with the Maharishi, and there's a song called Not Guilty uh, that, that, he, that he did, that the Beatles uh, didn't put out. And Cold Turkey was one that John had offered to the Beatles, and they said no, because that, that was John coming out of drug addiction, and they didn't think that was quite right for the Beatles. And, but in the early 60s, they were quite prolific. They were giving songs to other people as well. Um, one of the songs that they gave to other people was uh, A World Without Love, by, uh, which was a big hit for Peter and Gordon. And I was talking to Peter Asher a few months back, and he said that uh, when Paul McCartney gave him A World Without Love and said, you can have this song, they took it along to the recording studio to do it, and Norman Ewell said, uh, this song needs a bridge, the middle eight in the middle. It, it needs that to break it up. And so Peter Asher went to Paul McCartney and said, uh, can, you, can you give us a bridge for this song? And McCartney got the sheet of paper that had the lyric on, and, a different, and in a different colored ink, say he'd written it in red, and now he had a green pen, he wrote the bridge in green on that piece of paper and uh, they then recorded the song and Peter Asher told me he still got that piece of, piece of paper it's in a bank safe now uh. and I thought there must be, there must be people who have done very well in their own right that have things of, that pertain to the Beatles 
the we will never ever see because they're quite wealthy in their own right and there's no need to sell it. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, like, uh, they were so prolific, uh, the Beatles, for the short period of time that they were together, you know? But, but, well, sort of. I mean, if you look at Irving Berlin, he wrote 2,000 songs during his career, and they don't touch that at all. Um, and dur- during the 1960s, the Beatles, Lennon and McCartney wrote about 230 songs. Um, so it, it's not a vast amount. But they're nearly all great ones, and of course they were doing so much else besides, because unlike Irving Berlin, they were going out on their own promoting them. Right. And they were making movies, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, Hard Day's Night is a terrific film. I mean, that's, that's another very good thing about the Beatles. They always found the right people to work with. And that film was directed by Dick Lester, who'd been working with the goons and had this kind of anarchic humour that they loved. The script was done by a Liverpool Welshman called Alan Owen, who'd written a big TV play called No Trams to Lime Street, and he really got into the humour of the Beatles and uh, developed their characters in that film, so that was perfect for it. Yeah. They had the perfect manager in George Martin. I mean, I talked to a lot of bands from the 1960s, and you know that they had trouble with their management, that they didn't know where the money was coming from or where the money went. Uh, but the Beatles didn't have that at all because they could trust Brown Epstein. And that is a huge factor. They could get on with being the Beatles. Yeah. Um, whereas other bands, you, you know, they, they couldn't be as creative as they would like to be because they had all these other issues. So the, the Beatles are very lucky in that respect. Everyone, it seems, who was associated with the Beatles was the right person for the job. Um, Brian Epstein was able to find the right people. Tony Barrow and then Derek Taylor for being press officers. They, they were perfect, for example. Yeah, right. Okay, surrounded themselves with great people. Yeah. Spencer? Yeah, and, t- and Tony Barrow t- told me, incidentally, that when he was press officer for the Beatles, Half the time, his job was keeping the Beatles out of the papers because he thought there was too much publicity for him. <laughs> what a great job the press officer to have. Wow. All right, Spencer, hold on, okay? Yeah. Spencer Lee is with us, uh, author and uh, Beatles expert. 312-981-7200 is the phone number. He's written a ton of books, too, not just about the Beatles, but about a lot of musicians. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, too, right here on 720 WGN. Nick DeGilio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline Studio downtown Chicago here on uh, 720 WGN here till 4 o'clock. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about uh, the times when you felt old. Like, what was the first time where you actually felt old? Also coming up, we got some classic Carson comedy clips, which we play every uh, morning at 2.30. And uh, we're going back to 1987 for a Paula Poundstone clip. And my dad's going to call in and tell a joke, because it's a jokey, jokey, jokey time on a Monday morning. And the news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. All right. Uh, Spencer Lee is with us. He is an author and a Beatles expert. And we're talking Beatles and uh, all kinds of other stuff, too. Let's get Spencer back. Hello, Spencer. Hello, that's Hi. Um, can I, I... You asked me before about the Beatles and segregation in America. Yes. And I, I, I just, just had a look, because you caught me on the top there, and uh, 
they, they didn't want to play segregated halls in America, uh, and the incident that happened was at a hotel in Jacksonville because the Beatles were touring with um, the black group, the Exciters, and the great Clarence Frogman Henry, and the hotel wouldn't take the, wouldn't take them all in the hotel, and uh, that was the issue involved. Wow. Okay. All right. Making a statement there. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Now you've written several books about so many different musicians. Um, see, you wrote a book about uh, wrote a book about Frank Sinatra. Tell me about that one. Well, I I just knew that that, that would that would be a, a great short story. In fact, because he was someone who had an absolutely sublime voice, and absolutely perfectly according to standards, of course. But he also had these mafia connections. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I thought there's so many contradictions in his life that it would be a, a good story to tell. And in fact, uh, during the course of the book, um, I, I did meet a member of the mafia um, but in, my, in my research, because this, this member of the mafia had come to Liverpool on holiday. And uh, I remember going to the hotel to meet him to talk, and he used to, about, to talk about Sinatra. And uh, when I went into the bar to meet him, he was standing up against the wall, so he didn't have his back exposed. And he said, I always stand like this. And he said, and I never sit down during the day because I don't want to get any creases in my clothes. And uh, he said, what, what, what would you like to drink? And I said, well, I don't drink, thank you. And he said, nobody says no to a member of the mob. <laughs> I shall ask you that again. What would you like to drink? So it was a pretty scary time, really. But I, was, I got some great Sinatra stories out of them, and, and they, they're, they're in my book. That's great. And it's called Frank Sinatra, An Extraordinary Life. Yes, yeah. I wanted to call it uh, Frank Sinatra, Call Me Irresponsible, because that was one of his great songs. Right. But, uh, the, pub- the publisher preferred an extraordinary life, which, which to me is obvious. He obviously had an extraordinary life. Uh, and then you wrote a book about Simon and Garfunkel as well. Yeah, that was a, that, that was a, a, a few years ago. It, it was just that I felt it was it was a, it was a great story. Um, I love the contrast between the two of them. Um, and there was a, a classic interview in. Uh, on British TV in the 1970s, where on the old grey whistle test, uh, Paul Simon was, was asked how he and Art wrote their songs, and he said, uh, I don't want to brag, but I wrote them all. And the interviewer said, is that generally known? And he said, everybody knows it but you. Huh. And uh, I, I, I thought, that I, I love Paul Simon's lyrics. Um, and I, I love the fact that Art Garfunkel has, has often worked with Jimmy Webb and there's some great songs there. So I, I thought that that would be a, a nice book uh, to do. And in a, in a way, that got me thinking that I should be Dylan. I mean, the difference between Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel is that Paul Simon makes an album for, and, and thinks, right, that's it for five years. But Dylan, of course, just goes on and on and on. And uh, he's just so productive. And a friend of mine is uh, Tim Rice. And Tim is quoted in the book. He talks about Larry Grice and he talks about Bob Dylan. And uh, 
I sent him a copy of the Bob Dylan book, which is 500 pages long. And uh, he sent me a note back to say, uh, thanks very much for sending me the Bob Dylan book. Looking through it, I can see I've been bone idle. <laughs> uh, let's get back to the Beatles real quick while we're wrapping up. They're still selling records like crazy, right? So who are we talking about? The, the Beatles. The Beatles, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, well, the anthology in 1995 when it came out, which used a lot of old tracks that hadn't uh, been released officially before. Uh, so, well, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about that. When that was about to come out, I was just walking down the street in Liverpool, and I met Colin Hanson, who was the drummer for the Quarrymen, and uh, he... Uh, worked as an upholsterer. He hadn't been in the music business for decades. And he said, but I knew him, and he said, oh, Spencer, he said, I've just had a, a letter from Apple um, saying that this anthology is coming out of the Beatles, and I'll have a couple of tracks on that because the Beatles, the Quarrymen recorded in spite of all the danger, and that'll be the day, of course, the Philippines studio in 1958. And uh, they're going to give me £500 for my rights and I said, don't sign that, Colin. That'll be, that'll be the first uh, offer. And it went on to sell uh, 13 million copies, the first volume of the anthology. So if Colin was getting, say, a penny for each track, that would have been an awful lot of money. And I've seen Colin since, but I haven't liked to say to him, did you sign that piece of paper or not? Because I've got a feeling he might have done, but I hope he didn't. Yeah, and also, uh, when the Number Ones uh, CD came out, that also went through the roof. Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, well, the, track, the tracks are so popular all the time. I mean, one of the things that changed the whole public perception of the Beatles, and I'm very sorry to say this, really, is the death of John Lennon. Mm-hmm. Because people felt so sorry for John Lennon, and people got so interested in the Beatles. And I think... I'd seen in the 1970s in Liverpool a lot of groups wanting to have nothing to do with the Beatles. And I could understand that because groups were coming up in Liverpool and they were thinking, we can't even be the best band in this city because of these Beatles and what they've done in the past. So it's hard to be original. And in fact, when the Sex Pistols came along in 1976, they sort of started at year zero, as it were, said, this is something new that we're doing. And then Matlock was sacked from the Sex Pistols because in the Musical Express he, he said that he liked the Beatles. So Punk was trying, a new way of trying to get away from the Beatles. But I think when John Lennon died, everybody felt so sorry for what had happened to John Lennon that they got a tremendous interest in the Beatles and in John Lennon's music. And that changed the whole perception of everything. And Liverpool became an immense tourist centre then. And millions of people have flocked into the city and there are Beatles conventions here. I mean, there are Beatles conventions in Chicago, of course. But, uh, you know, the Beatles went to Chicago a, a few times, whereas they lived in Liverpool, and that makes a big difference. So we've, we've got a whole sort of range of Beatles sites that people can see here, which, which is great. And that is why I say the Beatles really have to save our city now. Wow. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a very uh, a close connection between the Beatles and Chicago, obviously, and we do have Beatlefest here 
um, every year. I know it's great. I, I just thought the big difference between Liverpool is between the UK and America. In the, in America, you have a lot of bands that are named after cities, don't you? Like Chicago and Kansas and Boston. Right, right. But we don't we don't have bands called Sheffield and Glasgow and Liverpool. Right. Well, there you go. Spencer, uh, really fascinating stuff talking to you. Is there a website that people can check out? Well, there's my website, yeah. If they Google Spencer Lee, they'll find, they'll find me on there. And if people want signed copies of my book, you know, I, um, I do it from my website. But the books are on, are on Amazon and the like. Everywhere. Okay, and your website, again, is SpencerLee.com, and that's L-E-I-G. Yeah, well, yeah, Spencer Lee. Spencerlee.co.uk. Oh, right. I mean, people can send me an email if they want to. Okay. And is uh, L-E-I-G-H is your last name? L-E-I-G-H, yes. yes. Okay. All when right. When I was at school, we were told, we were told I'd be 40 except after C. You know, <laughs> what about my name? Yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, Spencer, it was really, really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Nick. Okay, there we go. Um, more Beatles uh, talk coming up. And, uh, let's get to the news.